words, God doesn't speak for 400 years, and the next time God speaks, it's to announce the birth of Christ and Christ's first coming to this world. But as we move to chapter 4, the people's complaints against God have been dealt with. If you remember, as we looked at these first three chapters, we've seen over and again God comes to them and said, You have said, or it might be you have thought, I'm not saying that they necessarily verbalised these words, maybe one or two did, but the people by and large, the people of Judah, those people who God called his people, uh, were holding these complaints against God. I'm just mentioned in prayer to the Lord, some of them, uh, their prayers were sort of focused on things like um, all the wicked round about us, these pagan nations, just live life as they please, and yet they don't suffer for it. In fact, they are more blessed than we are. They've got more comfortable lives, they're richer, um, things are going well for them, they live to an old age. That's not fair, God. Well, why should we suffer when we're your people? We should be the ones who are rewarded in this lifetime. That's one of their complaints. And they've got a complaint that uh, God is, it, it should be satisfied when they bring their sacrifices, even though their sacrifices are inferior. They're not good enough quality to be offered to God but hey, God should be grateful we're giving them to him and the priests are backing that up and the priests are accepting them and giving them in sacrifice and, and that's another complaint there's the complaint that God brings against them that they're robbing God in what they give him but instead of gladly bringing their tithes and their offerings to the Lord they're shortchanging God and reasoning that God should be grateful for whatever they choose to give him and God's dealt with those things one by one. And as we've looked at them, we call this series Today's Church. Uh, I hope we can have been honest enough to see ourselves in those people so often. But now we come to chapter 4 and God effectively says, right, I've dealt with the complaints. I, I pointed out to you where you're wrong. Now let me show you the reality of what's yet to happen. Look at it from this perspective and this will keep you from those complaints. This will keep your mind right, and this will keep your affections right, and this will keep your life right if you keep this perspective through life. Paul Tripp, as we mentioned last time in that series that we watched together as church Wednesday evenings uh, 18 months or so ago, uh, if you remember, he said in that that you'll never have a right life view until you view life through the lens of eternity. You know, you've, you've got to be able to cover it from God's perspective, you've got to be able to look at this life from the perspective of what's going to happen after it. It's only then, when you look at it that way around, that you can make sense of this life, and you can live this life in the way that you should and you need to, in the way that glorifies God. What I want us to see as we go into chapter 4, that God is speaking to his people. It's so easy, I suggest to us, that when we come to think about the return of the Lord and Judgment Day, that our immediate response is, yeah, you need to listen to this because you're not saved. You know, this is this is where you get your comeuppance. You know, this is this is for you. But God isn't saying this here to the pagan nations. He's writing this to Judah. He's writing this to those who profess to be His people. And His point is that not everyone who says they're a child of God is a child of God. And God's saying to the professing church, "Look, wake up within." The, the, the scope of the visible church, there are definitely those who are truly saved, but there are also those who are not. There are those who are living the life of a Christian, talking the talk of a Christian, well, 
sorry, they, 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 they talk in the talk of a Christian, they're giving lip service to it, they're doing certain things, they're coming to church, they're reading their Bible, but they're not saved. And hence, this chapter 4 is to the church to say, look, you're sure where you stand on that day, as much as it is to those outside of the church. So let's start here, the first three verses of chapter 4, the day of the Lord. Let me just read it again. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise, with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, of the celestial armies. One of the great problems with Old Testament prophecy is always to know to what event future it refers. Very often there are two aspects in prophecy, there are two forthcoming events that it looks at, not infrequently three. For example in Isaiah very often uh, there's a short term point in history that it's looking forward to, particularly when Cyrus is going to deliver them and restore them back to Israel, and then there's a greater fulfilment when Christ comes the first time, and then an ultimate and final and greatest fulfilment when Christ returns the second time, which is of course yet to happen. Here we don't have three, but we certainly have two. There is certainly reference here to the first time when it talks of Elijah coming, and him turning the children to the father and the father to the children, but primarily this is about when Christ returns the second time, which is still future. Many similes and metaphors in scripture that God uses to talk of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in glory and that day of judgment. The one used here is not an infrequent one, uh, and that is the sun and the fire that results from the sun. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? He uses the sun here in two ways. First of all, in verse 1, he uses it in a very destructive way, and then he uses it in verse 2 in a very positive way. And of course, the sun has both effects on the earth. Uh, verse 1, the picture is the picture that we see all too often this summer, isn't it? Uh, we've seen on the news where there's been massive forests of fire, massive trails of fire blazing through an unstoppable fire, destroying everything in its path. And that's the picture there in verse 1. It's, it's, it's the picture of a dry, barren land where the place is parched and then the sun is burning down on it in all its power and all its brilliance. And you know what happens, someone leaves a bit of glass lying there or something on the ground and it acts like a magnifying glass and focuses those sun's rays and suddenly there's a fire. And before you, well, you know, that fire is out of control, it's out of hand and it doesn't matter how many people come to try and deal with it, they send planes over dropping water on it, but that fire just burns and burns until it's destroyed massive tracts of lands. That's the day of the Lord. At least that's the day of the Lord as far as some are concerned. And verse, tell, verse 1 tells us who it is for which that is a right picture. It says all the arrogant and all evildoers. 
sounds familiar is because it was only last week, as we were looking in chapter 3, that we came across reference to the arrogant and the evildoers. Do you remember what we saw there? Just go back to verse 15 of chapter 3. This is God's complaint against his people that they're looking at the arrogant and the wicked, the evildoers, and they're saying, back in verse 15, now we call the arrogant blessed. When we look at the way they live their lives and we look at how successful they've been in this world, it looks to us like they're the blessed ones. We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They're not only indifferent to God, they're actually doing the very things God says you must not do blatantly. They're just living lives that totally contradict Scripture. They're living the very lives that God in the Old Testament has said this deserves death. And God struck people down for doing And God's people are saying, but they're doing exactly that and they're not suffering anything for it. And now God picks up on that again and uses that same description of them and says, but you see what their end is going to be. On this day of judgment, when Christ comes, it will be like this forest fire that strikes them down in their arrogance and their wickedness. Friends, as we saw last week, how important it is that we keep that in view every day of our lives. We'll, we'll never make sense of this lifetime. We'll never have a right attitude towards holiness. We'll never have a right attitude towards God, to the lost, to those who are going to hell, unless we keep this in view. For them, this day will be horrific. And, and God uses here three ways of describing them on that day. Here's the first one. They will be stubble. See that first one? They'll be weak. They look so powerful now. They look so big now. They, they look indestructible now. He says on that day, they'll be like stubble. They'll be weak. They'll be easily destroyed. The fire will just burn through and they'll be gone. Second, he says, it will set them ablaze. The Bible speaks of hell as being a lake of fire, doesn't it? What an horrific picture. I've never seen someone on fire and I hope I never do. Many ways I can imagine dying, that is one of the most horrific. It's the way many martyrs die, the same. Set on fire, and there's a record if you read Mark, uh, the Gospel Book of Martyrs. Uh, one occasion at least when they didn't light the fire properly and, and the person was burning but not dying. And it was crying out for them to heat more on the fire, and because the fire was only half doing its job. that God gives us. I don't believe that, that hell is necessarily involves fire. This is, this is sort of the, the most horrific picture that we can hold as a human being. And so God's saying, look, in our limited ability to understand the horror of hell, and, and I believe it would be worse than this, he's saying, imagine a lake of fire and just living, existing in this lake of fire. Setting the blade destroy them. They'll just be burned. And the third 
fig tree loses its leaves. It will leave them neither root nor branch. This always amazes me when you see a fire's theme, is how quickly life starts again there. I remember we used to go, not infrequently, we used to drive down and camp in France down in the south of France. And it's an area where they would get a lot of fires, forest fires. One year we were there and there was this uh, really big fire going on. And it was amazing to watch and to watch them uh, fighting it. I think the next day in the paper, the best of my French, it was something like 13 fire appliances and it had taken, no, maybe it was 30, that's enough. But it had taken something like 10 hours to get this fire under control and they'd been flames bombing it with loads of water in it. And yet, the next year when we went back, it was all green again. You know, you, you look where a fire's been and the trees look like they're dead and nothing could ever cover them, but then the branch starts to throw forth leaves again next year or the year after. The ground looks dead, but then suddenly a root starts to throw up a new shoot. But not this fire. It says, this fire will leave the mother root nor branch. This, for the one who's not in Christ, is the end of ends. There is no appeal to a higher judge than Christ when he comes in judgment. It won't be the case that you can appeal to, you know, I'll take my case to appeal, I'll go to a higher court. There is no higher court. There's no probation. There's no remittance. There are no extenuating circumstances to plead. But this is the end of life in any positive sense for those who are outside of Christ. This is the day of judgment. This is the day when God says, I call you to account for your wickedness, for your evil, and for your rejection of the Savior. Friends, that's reality for millions in the world today. That's reality for many people we know and love. Many people we work with, many people we live amongst. But there's a second picture as we go to verse 2. And he uses the sun again, but this time in a totally different way. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the storm. This time, the picture is, there's been a long winter. A long, dark, cold winter. And, and the cows have given birth in the stalls. They've not been able to do it out in the field. And the calves are shut up there in the stalls. And finally, the first day of spring comes and there's a sun and there's some warmth in the air. And the farmer comes out and says, this will be a good day to let the calves out into the field. And the calves come out and for the first time they see proper daylight and sunlight and they come out leaping and dancing into the field. And he says, this is how it will be for who? Verse 2, you who fear my name. In other words, for those who are truly his, for those who aren't just Religious aren't just trying to impress God, but who genuinely, sincerely have come in repentance and faith, got their trust and hope in Christ, submitted to his lordship in their life, and are seeking to live not like the wicked and the evil, but in a way that honours and glorifies God. For them it will be so different. It will be the first day of eternal bliss. The first day of untellable joy and delight. 
wicked will be removed. Christ will reign. We will see him. We will be there physically with him in person. We will be in new heavens and new earth in which there is no contamination, no damage, no competition. We will have glorified bodies, minds, hearts. We will think or write. We will not be tempted to sin. We will not be able to sin. And we will have it for all of eternity. And finally, I will be able to live each day like I now long to do. Perfectly in the light of Christ. Perfectly glorifying Christ. Now let's just think this is Old Testament language. And you know, it's Old Testament fire and brimstone. You know, that's, that's Old Testament. I hope nobody ever thinks like that. There, is, there was no division in the Bible originally that this man is putting in. There is one Bible. Unless you should think that way, let me just turn you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, just for a moment. New Testament teaching. Paul writing to the New Testament church after Christ's death, resurrection, ascension. This is what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, some of the most frightening verses in the whole of the Bible for those who are outside of Christ as suggest. Verses that we do well to use in evangelism more than we do. They answer so many of the world's objections. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy, it's writing to the believers, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Do you get it? Exactly the same picture as God gives to Malachi 400 years before the birth of Christ. A day is coming. It is said. There is no question about it. It will happen. What does he say there in 2 Thessalonians? Um, when he comes, verse 10, on that day, what does he say in Malachi chapter 4, uh, as we've just read it? Sorry, I've lost my page. For behold, the day is coming. What did he say in 2 Peter chapter 3? The day of the Lord will come. There's, there's no question about this. We are 2,000, 2,500 years closer than when the prophecy was given to Malachi reading. This day that is set that will come when Jesus Christ returns in glory and this fire burns and this sun shines and for those who are outside of Christ this is the end of everything they've ever been lived for and hoped for. Now just Look at that picture in 2 Thessalonians and compare it with this picture in Malachi chapter 4. Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. How does it say he comes in blazing fire? Exactly the same picture as Malachi. To 
do what? Verse 8. To inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we live in a world where people say, Jesus just won a many roads to heaven. God doesn't mind which way you come, God just calls you to come. You can come by that or you can come by that way. It's up to you. Not according to God's word, is it? The judgment is on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, not on those who do not obey the gospel of somebody else. This, this is the criteria whether or not you obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And what's going to happen to them? Verse 9 in 2 Thessalonians 1 they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That doesn't mean they're going to be put to death. There's no eternal punishment in that. That would be a moment's punishment and then nothing. No, it says the punishment of eternal destruction. They're going to be being destroyed forever. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. But what does it say for the true Christian? Verse 10. Be marvelled at among all who have believed. The day that for them is so horrific for us will be the day of greatest joy. When we see Christ, my Lord, my Saviour, my King, break through the heavens and come back to this planet in all his radiant glory, and every knee will bow before him, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. to the Old Testament church through Malachi God describes the event in this way what does he say? verse 3 you should tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord finally the victory will be ours not theirs finally instead of us looking at them and saying well they've got it all they'll be looking at us and saying you've got it all and, and it will be metaphorically as though we're just trampling all over them. They will have nothing. We will have everything. My friend, there's no ambiguity here. There's no wriggle room here. There's, 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 this is just simply how it will be. Praise God that he gives us passages like this. He gives them to us as a warning. Wake up, says the Lord, to the Old Testament church in Malachi, to the New Testament church in 1 Thessalonians, to us through bows, he says, wake up, this is what is going to happen. Are you ready for it? It's the parable of the virgins, isn't it? They're waiting for the bridegroom to come. They know it's going to happen. The half are ready for it and half aren't. Well, they give the appearance that they are, but in reality they're not. And when they go off to find the oil, by the time they come back, the door's been shut. They had the appearance of being ready, they weren't, they weren't the Lord's. Friend, are you ready? Then living in light of that day, verses 4 to 6. These are not only the closing verses of this book of prophecy, these are the closing verses of the whole of the Old Testament. So what does God leave his people with? As they go into this 400 years of silence, what does he leave us with as we switch between before Christ and the life of Christ. He leaves us with this. 
verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Why does he give us that? Why, as this final thing, given that Jesus Christ is returning in glory, remember the law. The law can't save us. Absolutely it can't save us. It never could. As we've seen over and again Sunday mornings as we're working through the book of Romans. The law was never designed to save anyone. So why does he tell them to remember the law? Let me give you four reasons. Here's the first one. It speaks of God's nature, of his holiness, which is unchanging, of what holiness looks like. When, when you want to know what a holy God is like, you look at the law. And you see what a holy God looks like. My friends, how we need to do that is within our lives. Second thing is this. It shows us our own sin. The law is like a massive mirror. like looking in mirrors or not. I have to admit, I'm not particularly keen to see myself. I, I, I don't get a lot of pleasure out looking in a, in a mirror. I know some people spend hours looking in mirrors. But um, why don't I like looking in mirrors? Because I don't like to see what I actually look like. You know, every new wrinkle that appears, every new grey hair that appears. My eyes looking a bit bloodshot and looking a bit white in the face or whatever. And I'm like, oh dear, do I look as bad as that today? It shows us what we're like, doesn't it? What we're really like. And, and I know maybe some of us put lots of stuff on our faces while we're looking in the mirror so that we look somewhat different to everybody else. But in the mirror, we see ourselves as we are. And that's what the law does for us. Paul said, I'd never have known that coveting was sin. Never have known that, he says. All, all my life I was living, and I had no idea that you know, envying what somebody else had, that that was breaking God's law, that was sinful, until the law said, do not covet. And suddenly I realised that I was sinning in that. And this is worse than that, once I discovered that was sin, I found myself wanting to do it more and more. It shows us our sin. It shows us the holiness of God. It shows us our sin. And thirdly, it points us, therefore, to our need of Christ. You know, without the law, wouldn't understand that we need a saviour. But once we look at the law and we realise this is God's holy standard and I can't possibly attain it, I realise that I need someone to rescue me. Paul puts it like this, right to the Church of Galatia, Galatians 3.24. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. It was there to lead us to Christ. And fourthly, as Christians, it shows us how we should live to please God. Once we are saved. Once the Holy Spirit is indwelling us in order that we can live holy lives, the law shows us what that life should look like. So he says, remember the law. And tragedy is today, there are many Christians who just close up the Old Testament and say, forget that. You know, that's... That, that's I want the New Testament. That's what's relevant today. Bible is what's relevant today. And Paul said, uh, uh, Malachi says, remember the law. Let it do the work that it was given to do in the first place. And then God says, verses 5 to 6, and it's a promise, but it's a 
beginning its tale. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. First there's this promise that Elijah will come. And we know what that was about, because when we come into the New Testament, 400 years later, as Matthew opens, what do we read Jesus saying in Matthew 11 verse 12? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Or as the angel said it to Zechariah concerning his son John before he was born, Luke 1.16 of John, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist, this, this Elijah, he comes in the power of Elijah, he comes as Elijah came. And what was his ministry that he's been pointed forward to here? What was John's ministry? To tell people they need to repent. They need to repent their sin and turn to Christ. And when the people listened to John the Baptist, those who heard him and believed him did exactly that. They didn't follow John, they did for a little while, but then they turned to follow Christ because John says, there's the one you've got to follow. I must become smaller, he must become greater. He's, he's the Lord. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. But God's saying through Malachi, you want to be right for Christ's return, here's what you've got to do. Repent your sin, turn to Christ, as John the Baptist was telling everybody in his day. And then, good heart of yourself in the light of the law and say how does God want me to live and start living like that in God's power in God's glory but if you don't Israel says God Judah if you don't here's this thing I will come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction tragically for Judah vast majority rejected Christ, they rejected the gospel, they rejected all of the teaching of the New Testament. And what happened? Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the Jews were thrown out. I think it's only been the last hundred years that they've come back into that land. It's called Google, God's thing. We have to take God's word seriously. We have to take these warnings seriously. My friend, here we've got this massive warning. Are you ready for Christ's return? For Christ should return tonight. Are you ready? Are you sure in your heart that you have really turned your back on your rebellious life in God's sight? That you're really not trying to live life to your own heartbeat, your own agenda, your own goals? That you really have seen that that is wrong? that you recognise that you've been living in God's world that he's given you as a gift without any reference to him. And you recognise that the only way that can be dealt with is through the work and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you come and saw God's forgiveness and 
and say, God, I, I don't deserve anything but your wrath. I deserve to be slumbered before you. I deserve to be destroyed by your fire. I deserve eternal damnation. Father, would you forgive me? Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus Christ died in order to make it possible for you to forgive me. I, I turn my back on, with your help, I turn my back on my life. From here on, I want you to run it. I want you to be in charge of it. And I put my trust and my faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you've done that, then let me ask you, how are you living life in light of the fact that Christ is coming again? easy for us to lose sight of it in our busy lives, isn't it? It's easy for us to think, well, tomorrow I'm going to do this and that, and to forget what James says, if the Lord wills tomorrow, I'll do what's all right. Because tomorrow's in God's hands. How are, you, how are you living your life in light of the fact this might be your last day on earth? Before you see Christ, and the world outside of Christ is eternally dead. A heart to warn people, to challenge them, to show them their need of a savior. And we love the savior. And we want him to live a life that glorifies him.